I'll go ahead and ask, was it a little faster getting up here today? Not much. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Today, we will be looking at the first part of chapter 6 as we continue to walk through this book. Now, near the end of our passage today is another one of Paul's familiar lists of transgressions which can naturally attract and dominate our immediate attention. But, in order to deal rightly with those things, we have to be diligent to understand what the whole context is about. What we discover is that the Apostle Paul is addressing the congregation of this Corinthian church about how they are not handling a host of internal disputes between members. In other words, this is about members of the church who have grievances against one another. Now, it's immediately obvious that this is one more problem which has caused and still is causing internal church strife and dissension and has become very visible to the non-Christians in their city. Why? Because they are not handling these mainly minor grievances internally. They're taking one another to court in the public square, even suing one another. The way Paul deals with this issue is very, very telling. And it leads us all of us, out of the courtroom into a much deeper appreciation and understanding of who we are in Christ and why that matters so very, very much. It's also important to note here at the beginning that while Paul instructs believers to handle these minor grievances internally in the church, he is not implying that everything that happens between people in the church is always an in-house matter. Historically, and in our day, we are probably very aware of huge mistakes that have been made by many churches when things that should have been reported and brought to the civil authorities have not been. Examples would be physical and or sexual abuse or misconduct, embezzlement, etc., etc. These kinds of issues would require the intervention of civil authorities. They are not minor grievances, but major legal issues. Our passage is dealing with grievances and disputes between church members that are not serious enough to be taken outside of the church to be dealt with. The underlying foundational point of our passage may surprise us because it is about our identity in Christ. Notice as we go through the first 11 verses that how we view ourselves or who we think we really are 
not only strongly impacts how we think about everything else in life, but it also how affects how we behave in every area of our lives, both inside and outside the church. We think we know that, but when we see ourselves acting one way, here, one way, there, another way, there, we realize pretty quickly that maybe we don't understand what our true identity is if we're a believer. So in the first four verses of chapter 6, Paul starts off by asking questions that make the Corinthians consider what their true identity really is. And you may be asking, well, why does he do that? Why not? It's a great way to get somebody's attention. And he knows how to ask the right questions. And when we read these, you will be asking yourselves maybe some of these questions. And then in verses 5 through 10, he shows them how their current behavior, what they're doing now, and all this grievance suing each other and in, their, in the town that they live in, is completely opposite to what their true identity in Christ is. And then in verse 11, he reminds them of the gospel truths they must remember to live out their true identity in Christ. So this whole passage here is about what our identity is if we're a believer. First, like these people, maybe we need to have somebody ask us questions that will make us consider the way we act, the way we talk, the way we live. In other words, somebody could say, why did you do that? Why did you say that to that person? Why were you acting like this? Why weren't you acting like this? And you can see how that goes back to thinking about who you are, what your purpose is in this world, and what God has called you to do because of who you are in Christ. If you are able, please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, let's first go through and look at the questions that Paul asked to get their attention, because that's what he's doing. He's trying to get their attention. We must realize at the outset that in many cities, such as Corinth, especially in the ancient world, one of the main forms of entertainment was taking in the very public airing of lawsuits and cases. And this happened in huge public buildings in the city's forum area near the marketplace. Everyone gathered downtown to hear all the stuff. Think reality TV. Think Judge Judy. Even though this was a public spectacle which drew in very large audiences, Paul obviously was trying to help these immature Christians see it for what it really was, which was just another exaltation of worldly wisdom on steroids in Corinth. Did you catch that? Worldly wisdom. Who can show themselves to be wiser in the world than someone else? Who can turn the trick and the tide in a case and really get somebody and make them pay? On, on, and on, and on. It wasn't just theater, though. This was the real thing. People had to suffer consequences. And boy, these crowds love to see the consequences. In the first question, in verse 1, Paul asked, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law or to public court? before the unrighteous instead of the saints. And immediately here we see a contrast being drawn, saints going before before the unrighteous for in-house judgments. The word saint conveys the Christian's identity in Christ. Why? Because it means being set apart by Christ, made holy in Christ's righteousness, set apart by Him to be His in every area of your life that he calls you to live in. And this is exactly how Paul started the letter. Now, it's been a while since we started it, but you might remember, or if you need to look, about verse 2 we read, to the church, in the first chapter, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, does it make sense why he started his letter out like that? He started off the letter reminding them who they were because of Christ's sacrificial atonement for them. And he joined them together with who? All the other believers in all the churches. Very first thing he did. So he's been doing this not real subtly either already in the first five chapters. 
Now, this does not mean that we are holy in the sense of being morally perfect. But in the sense that belonging to Christ, we should respond to these disputes differently. The unrighteous here simply refers to those who have not been justified by Christ. It's just another way to say non-believers here. So what's Paul's point? Simply that the church is to be God's community that conducts its family affairs in ways that are not shaped by the brokenness of the culture that it exists in. The unrighteous do not and cannot consider matters affecting Christians from the perspective of God's word. Christians are called to live a different kind of life, and even the justice system is different. Paul knows, of course, that sinful people are going to have disputes with one another. So is he saying that we're not sinful? No, we're redeemed sinners, and we still sin. And since Christians are redeemed sinners who are in the process of being sanctified, we, they, we will have disputes that come up between us. The question is, how should believers settle disputes when they come up? Paul's answer is clear, and I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty strong to me. Any personal disputes among members of the church must be settled within the church and not in the civil courts outside the church. And look at the words Paul used here. Paul actually asked them how they could even have the audacity to consider going to civil courts to settle their personal grievances with one another. Which word in that verse communicates that? That's what he means by, does he dare to go to law courts? That's what that means. Before the unrighteous instead of the saints. This strongly implies that this particular plan of action is completely unacceptable for a Christian. Why? Because going to a civil court to settle things usually turns very fast into trying to win and get our way and returning evil for evil, which should ring a bell. Has Christ talked to us about that? Yes, he has. And it turns that way instead of displaying the love between Christians who are united in Christ, which sends what kind of message? To the community we live in. A very bad message. In other words, Christians here are brazenly giving non-Christians the opportunity to ridicule Christ. And the Christians themselves are dividing their church. Which is, of course, really Christ's church. Now, many of you have probably been in churches like this. That went through something like this at one point or another in your lives. It is disgusting. It is draining. Y'all, a lot of you sit on a particular side. We've had visitors come in and new people, and some of you have been uprooted. Praise God that you have not gone and put a sign on your seat. And then it's, well, I'm on this side, they're on that side. We all go to the same 
small group meetings. They go to other small group meetings. You know how this works. All it takes is a little fire to get it burning. And then pretty soon we have bad attitudes towards other people and we won't even speak to somebody and we have to be reminded over and over what? God has put us together in a church where Christ is the head and each part of the body. And is Paul going to talk about this later in Corinthians? Yes. This is one of the biggest parts of the book. We will get there. About how each part of the body has a a particular role given to him by the Lord who called him to himself that is important. Very important. Now, his second, third, and fourth questions are in verses 2 and 3. It's like the machine gun has started. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That take you by surprise? Talk about getting their attention. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul wants them to see their identity in Christ in terms of what they're going to be doing in the future in Christ. Does that help you? Right now, if you're having trouble with somebody in here, and you just haven't told anybody, but you can't sleep at night because you're bitter. And I know this never happens. We all deal with this. Does knowing that part of being glorified in Christ at the, at, at the end of the age that you will be called on in this capacity to some degree, does that change a little bit? Maybe how you think of yourself now and make you want to pray, oh Lord, help me love this person and care about me. You love me. I've got 100 million issues. You love them. I'm in you. Therefore, no questions asked. We step out humbly, knowing that we're going to mess it up, but trusting him to change us enough to communicate what he wants to through us. This kind of thing should build up some kind of confidence that the justice in the church should be superior to the system of justice in the world. Should be. But in the Corinthians case, that's just not true yet. The infighting, divisiveness, the bitterness, the gossiping, the slandering, all the positioning for power does nothing else but sadly deny the reality of God's work in them. You know what that would look like here in our churches today? We'd have t-shirt sales in the foyer and on each one would be a different color with a different name of a different group in the church and it'd start off nice oh let's see who can sell the most and then it would end up being this free-for-all well ours ours better no don't go buy that one buy our color we'll pay you to come you know how the church basketball teams used to work i think we all understand this but we need to be constantly on guard our own hearts here the fifth question is in verse 4 and it brings them back to the present issue so if you have such cases 
Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? In other words, what is he doing? He's bringing the Corinthians back to the fact that their identity is as God's present community of saints. So he's reminded them who they are, what they'll be doing in the future if they really belong to Christ. And now he's saying, come on, right now, right now, where are you on this? And this is not a question of whether the civil courts are incompetent to judge. That's not what this is about. This is about what Paul is trying to get them to see and understand and embrace. That Christians have no business taking their personal disputes outside the church. And you're going, that's just too hard. I've never seen it really done. Well, I've seen some other people, but they were just nice. I'm not nice. Some people are proud of that. So what do we do about that? We humble ourselves. Have you ever thought that that might be the whole point? One of the big points of why God has called us to be a part of Christ in a local body? We all need to learn that, every single one of us. We have to rub shoulders. You have to sit next to somebody, at least when everybody's here. There's a lot of people that have to sit next to you. And if you've been used to having your own row, and it's just hard. You may have to scoot up and kind of rub shoulders with somebody. And I don't know whether I like to do that. And then, especially not them, let me get all my friends together. We'll sit wherever. Let me get all my friends together. We'll go do this. But see, when we have to gather all together, it does something to us. It gives us a picture that we're not the only ones in here and that there are a lot of people that, that have different likes and dislikes. And we have to learn how to deal with that in the body of Christ. And what is that? It's preparation for eternity. Because when our sin goes away, we're going to realize how ridiculous all this posturing really is. And we're going to genuinely remember to pray for that person that we don't even know, even though we just heard their prayer request. It's, we, we should want to grow in doing that. But it takes time. You just don't learn this overnight. And yes, some of us are wired to be social, whatever you want to call them. Just a natural gift of flitting around, saying hi, caring about people. And the rest of us are just sitting there going, that scares me to death. Just be who you are in Christ. And if you have a chance, reach out. If you have a chance to answer a question, do so. Honestly, forthrightly, pointing to God and your need for grace and whatever it is. And God can continue to do that. We've seen a lot of growth around here in that. And what I think I'm trying to say is keep going with it. We're just really getting ready for eternity in this regard. People who have been made right with God should be willing to and should work on making things right with one another. That's part of it. We cannot choose to redefine what identity 
we have, which our world right now is saying completely the opposite of that. Do you guys realize that? We probably do, but we don't understand, I think, how deeply that goes in us as believers in a church who have Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our identity is Christ. So when somebody is trying to get to know you, at some point in there, your main identity is with who? It's with him. And you need to be praying constantly about how you can get that across graciously, not just blow a trumpet in their face right with it off the bat. Some people can do that, and it works. But most people, I don't think, are wired quite that way. But if that's our identity, quick story. I started off out of college as a youth minister. We had a pretty, we had more people than this in our youth group. And that's not necessarily a good thing. So all these kids in high school, how'd they look at me? When I went up to to classes and lunch, which you could do back then without checking through 50 doors and signing 40 contracts, you understand? How did they introduce me to their friends? Oh, this is Bobby. He's only five years older than me, but he's our youth pastor, or he's our Sunday school teacher, because I did both. And after seven years, I literally had an issue with being called that so much that I decided I would use my degree finally and go teach public high school and disappear amongst all that. Not to disappear, but to be more sneaky about it. Sneaky in the right way, called doing something that's not total ministry, but at the same time trying to live like a Christian in the midst of it. It was a glorious experience for 13 years then in Central Texas. Was I a teacher first? That was my job. My identity is in Christ. What are you? See what you tend to put first. Now, there's a way that our society says we should answer those questions. It's usually like, what kind of work do you do? And that usually gets the conversation going. Or what kind of work you don't do, or something along that line. But at some point, as you get to know people, if they don't know who you really are in Christ, something's off. Or they can't tell your life is different, or why you don't laugh at those jokes, or why you really do take worshiping together with your body of Christ seriously. See what I'm saying? That's what's being lost in our day. Everything's melting into one big blob, and some of it's not very pretty. We have no right to reshape our own identities around the things that please us or that comfort us or excite us just because we want to and we think we can. You can still wear your colors for your high school or college team. You can still root for that. Whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about underneath it all, people need to finally see who you really are. And especially if you're a part of a body of Christ, that needs to be really, really apparent. That we are willing to put him first. Now, because these people have been living in ways that actually deny their true identity, Paul goes on to make 
something very clear. In verses 5 through 10, he shows them how their current behavior is completely the opposite of their true identity in Christ. Is this the first time in this letter he's done this? No, this whole letter has started off in verse 1 with who they are, and then in chapter 1 with how they're messing up and divisions and causing all sorts of disputes, and it's, it's horrible. And then we've even seen them having to admit that they haven't dealt with major sin that is so blatant and not even, not even put up with in the culture they live in, and they have to do something. And now we're in, in chapter 6, and it's just going to keep going, folks, all the way through this book. I say this to your shame, verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, if they, if they were elevating human wisdom up here so high, can you see how this, this question just almost did what Mike did to me almost back there for fun? Mike likes to walk by and play like he's going to kick my bat out from under me and then I fall over. Can you see how this would do that? Paul is going, you think you're so brilliant and you're making all these arguments and you're arguing on all these intellectual levels about everything under the sun and you can't even find somebody in the old church that can deal with, you know, Christian A and B because they're disputing on something ridiculous? This got them. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Where do those words come from? The teaching of Christ. That it is better to lose money on something and be defrauded rather than act like these people are acting. And that's what he's saying. You should be willing to take a loss for the sake of Christ. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So these people weren't having disputes with people outside the church that were cheating them. These people were having disputes over little things with people in the church who were taking advantage of them and, dis- and cheating them in some way. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a long list. And most of us would not put several things on that list if we were writing that verse. Now, to settle a dispute in verse 6, it means to render a decision and implies arbitration among believers, not litigation. That's why he says, can't one of you figure out how to rule in this? Paul is obviously shocked that any Christian brother would try to sue another brother in Christ. And this is not an attempt to hide sins from unbelievers here by Paul. Instead, this is asking us to demonstrate that the cross of Christ is, is God's solution to all of the problems associated with human sinfulness, including our disputes with one another. It is relevant. 
And in verse 7, we find out, maybe to our dismay, that it would be better for a person to be wrong or cheated than to risk dividing Christ's body by taking personal disputes before the unbelieving world. I don't know whether I've ever seen more than one or two examples of that in my whole life, of a Christian who's willing to take that loss because of the reputation it would mean to Christ if he didn't in some special circumstance. In other words, not only were members of the Corinthian church engaged in wrongdoing, but many were actually the ones inflicting the wrongdoing upon their fellow members of the church. We have some visitors today. I can't imagine visiting this church in Corinth and going, wow, let's go back. It just didn't make sense. Okay. This is a slightly expanded version of what Paul has already said in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Here he lists nine behaviors that are evidences of unrighteous behavior, which is obviously which are obviously things that are true of this culture, these people in this church. This is not an exhaustive list, but it does describe what the non-Christian lives in Corinth looked like, which is what he's doing. Each one of these nine behaviors could be a way of life for someone. What defines them? Are you ready? It could be their identity. And Paul says very clearly that no one whose way of life is defined in these ways will inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking over a long period of time. No interest in repenting. No interest in hearing from God. And this is the description of non-Christian pagan life in Corinth. And if you haven't noticed this yet, it is way, way too close to what our culture has already become. In other words, anyone known for living in any of these ways and having this identity could be assumed to be an unbeliever or one who is headed for destruction. So he's, he's really laying it on here. Sexual immoral is, is the general term, but it's especially focused on fornication, which is illicit intercourse between unmarried people. Idolaters are those who worship any false gods and false religious systems, not simply those who bow down to images. Adulterers are those unfaithful to marriage vows. Men who practice homosexually describes those who exchange and corrupt male-female gender roles and relations. It includes transvestitism and sex changes, other gender perversions. It does. This is what God's Word says. We've got to say it. Thieves are people who, whose greed-fueled theft of what belonged to other people Greedy are desires of what belongs to others and is never satisfied and always wants more, so those two are closely linked. You notice that? Somebody who has a greed problem, nothing is ever enough, no matter what it's for. Drunkards are known for intoxication. Revilers are people who destroy 
people with their tongues, wounding others with words. And it comes from hearts that are really full of hate. And swindlers are thieves who steal indirectly, taking unfair advantage of others to line their own pockets. Now, so why does Paul list these things here? Because the fundamental problem in the Corinthian church is the inability to filter out pagan ways of thinking and behaving. And Paul knows that people who live in such a way without genuine repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they're not true believers. This list does not refer to, and how many times have I had to say this in the first five chapters? A lot. This does not refer to Christians struggling with these particular sins, which we'll see in verse 11, the last verse here. This list pictures people who have never really been changed from the inside out. So they're not really struggling with it. They really, really like it. And it's the way they want to live. And it's a warning to those who are genuine believers and are drifting back into non-Christian behavior and thinking. Does that ring a bell? That's what's going on at this Corinthians church. These people came out of this culture. Many, most probably, changed. Some, they're going back. And they're stuck. A true Christian would then finally... be so grieved by what they realize they have done that they will turn, repent, confess, and be back in growing a relationship with their God. And that is glorious to see. Hope you can see some of these distinctions. So, it should be a warning for genuine believers to wake up to recognize their sin, repent of it, re-engage in the walk, re-engage in the struggle. Now, to help the true believers in this congregation grasp, once again, what their true identity is in Christ, Paul finishes this section of this letter in verse 11, which I think is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. If you get this verse... You can look back on what we just said and think about it correctly. Paul lists three benefits here, which are just some of the benefits which result from embracing the gospel by grace alone through faith. But the three benefits listed here, they're all in a verb tense, the aorist tense, which means that each one is referring to a completed and a decisive act. When? At conversion. So this is strange. It's heavy theology for some when you first hear this. In other words, God has done something. He's going to tell us the three benefits right off the bat. And we go, all right, everything's hunky-dory. I can walk perfectly and be totally obedient the rest of my life. It takes... How long before we find out that's not true? About that long. And we realize we've still got sin, residing sin, 
until we see Jesus face to face. And the whole rest of our time on earth is learning how to deal with this and trust him with it and apply his atoning sacrifice to our life, which means what? It's not necessarily going to be an easy road. Immediately, the church is empty. Thank you for staying seated. We all want the easy road. But see, we do have the indwelling spirit, the promises. These benefits are true. We have the power of Christ living in us. And the greatest joy in life is seeing him apply these things as we understand them more and really, really become listeners and agreeers with what the Spirit is doing in our hearts to take everything to him and watch him change us from the inside out. Because if you're a real believer, you do have a new heart. It is now disposed towards the things of God. A non-Christian's heart is never disposed toward the things of God unless they can figure out it's going to bless them somewhere they'll get a whole bunch out of it. That's not really God's concern. Okay, so there we are. It's obvious he wants the Corinthians to see the completed and the unassailable benefits that are true of all genuine believers here. Why? Because they're such messes. They've got to go back and realize, if I'm really a believer, then this is really true of me? Whoa, this is true of me? Then why am I doing this? Those are good questions to ask because usually people that don't know Christ are going, well, I don't know about that, but man, this is going on and I've grown kind of like it. There's no struggle, not much, other than it's hurting me, it's causing consequences in my life, There's people being hurt. All those things are true. But man, when he changes somebody's heart, you see a change. There's nothing more beautiful than that. So what does he say? Now, for those of you who think Paul is long-winded, this is some of the shortest explanation of biblical truth in the whole Bible. Notice the verbs. First, what does he say? Such were some of you. What does that communicate? You're going, yeah, I was that way. Is that what he's saying? All of you people that naturally feel guilty every time you do anything and look wrong way and you're raising your hands going, yeah, that's, that's the way I was. What he's saying is quite different. He's saying you were past tense that way. And he's going to be saying, now you have a different identity. Do you see why this is important? Consequences from sin, does that go away completely? No. The ripples go out, people are hurt, affected. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Somewhere that needs to be stopped. So sometimes we have to live with consequences. But guess what? If God saves you and the consequences have been great and you turn those things over to him, you look at these benefits and you can rejoice because he will even use the consequences of your sin to bring others to Christ, to show how somebody responds now that they couldn't respond before. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And that's how he uses it. 
only our God could use our sin and the consequences of it to accomplish something that he wants to happen. It's not just this endless role we end up depressed. Completely. Totally. It gives us hope because we see him working to change people in their hearts. So he says, and what he's doing here is realizing that these people, all of us, need to realize what God has already accomplished in them through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And we should be going, amen. We need to realize that better too. It's something we may know here, but it's like God has so many creative ways of making it go about a foot deeper and hits here. Because we have to learn it over and over and over again. He says, but you were washed. The main point being the completeness and the decisiveness of God's work through the Holy Spirit and completely and definitively washing, cleansing the new believer from their sin because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. What's the signifying work of this work? It's behind me. This is not what washes you clean. This signifies what God has done through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Which is why you do this when you become a believer. It gives you a way to what? Remember who you belong to. And it can help stir your heart as he brings you back to himself. Amen. Baptism signifies this washing. I mean, you get wet. It's easy. A kid can understand this. But we have so much trouble applying this. But you were sanctified. You're going, wait a minute. Sanctification is supposed to be a process. It is. But it also happens where you're set aside by God for his purposes the moment you become a Christian, by which now you can live that out and go through the process. We don't like to be talked about as being sanctified in our day, do we? We'd rather be cool sanctified or grungy sanctified or something else kind of sanctified, just kind of fit in better. Sanctified means you're set apart for God's purposes And then this other process takes place or starts happening. The daily dying to sin and rising with Christ to the newness of life. What are the words for that? Anybody know? The dying to sin is called mortification of the flesh. It's a Puritan way to say it. And there's another one that's even may sound stranger for rising with Christ to newness of life, which baptism illustrates. Vivification. It's kind of like being revived, your new life in Christ. Paul wants the Corinthians to go back to the beginning, the foundation of Christ's work and atoning sacrifice for us. Why? So that they will recognize how firm the foundation is upon which 
they stand. And how many of us need to do that ourselves? It's, it should be a daily practice. We're that, we're, we're that lazy. We're that forgetful. They've already been set apart by God as holy because Christ's own righteousness has been credited to them through faith. Folks, if you belong to Christ, you are a saint. That's the word for it. And then you think, oh, I'm not acting like one. Now you're getting it. You are, but you're not acting like one. So how are you trying to do that? On your own strength? In your own good works? Or are you depending on him to be more and more obedient? And that's the picture that we're all supposed to get. Now, he ends with, but some of you were justified. The main point being that all believers are now restored to right, standing before God and declared or regarded as righteous. There is no way to explain this list. Because now, instead of looking at the church as a bunch of people who are messed up as much or more than me, or less than me, the point messed up in so many different ways, now we look at each other and we see something different. We see messed up people who have known their need and they knew they were separated from God, who knew the only way that they can know God, the one who created them, which is why he created us, so that we could know him, was because his blood covered our sin and paid for all of it. Past, present, and future. That helps when we look and interact with each other as believers in Christ. We're looking at other saints, and we can't go, yeah, but they don't act like one. And they're thinking, well, you don't act like one either. The point is, we all realize that we're growing through this process. So instead of going, "Uh, you've done this many things, and this group over here has only done this many things, so I'm going with them because they look better than you. You see what the difference? It's like we're all in this, and we're going to the same place together. And God will use every one of us to help in that process as we walk. So the contrast that Paul is drawing can be looked at from three different angles. And the why I'm saying is that is some of you in here may be distracted by the order of these three benefits. And I know who you are. Don't be distracted by the order. This is not the order's Lewis, okay? It's not the list that says this happens first, then this, then this, then this. John Calvin just explained this the best. He said all three words refer to the benefits procured by Christ on his work on the cross and may all be referring to that one momentous work on our behalf from three different angles. That's all it's, he's just trying to get across what he's done for us. Very quickly, very heavily with some really strong words here. The contrast between washing and unclean things, sanctification and contamination, justification and guilt. When put together like this here, these three phrases, they're powerful. They're much needed encouragement for these people who have taken such a dangerous detour in their lives in their church and have lost focus of their true identity in Christ. And all of these blessings come to us 
by virtue of our union with Christ. Not one thing we've done merits any of this because we have been placed because of Christ's work in union with Him. These Corinthians who were Gentile sinners are now the people of God who compose the living temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the next part of chapter 6. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In one important sense, it no longer matters what they did. One important sense. Their former sins do not count against them. What matters now is that they are in Christ, which is their true identity. In other words, because they are in Christ, the Corinthian Christians are, what are the three words? Washed, sanctified, justified. Washed, sanctified, justified. True believer. Is that how you see yourself? Let's pray. Oh Lord, once again we are confronted by your gracious and loving word where you're trying to get through into our heads and hearts the truths of what you have done for us in Christ's work on the cross. We say we know and proclaim the gospel and we know and proclaim these truths but we also know that we need to apply them on a day-to-day moment-by-moment basis lord it it literally makes us bow to the ground in, in grateful joy and reverence when we realize that you have washed us clean that you have set us apart as holy and that you have justified us that we have been restored to right relationship with you so much so that you've united us to Christ and you've made us a part of your family in your name we praise and give you all glory for the work your son has completed for us it's in Jesus name we pray amen would you please stand for our benediction The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.